You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lori. And I'm Roger Gervais. I'm Jen Smith, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. This is a tale of two life insurance policies, or better yet, maybe just one life insurance policy. You see, when my father died when I was eight years old, my mom and dad had bought a life insurance policy for $200,000. This was back in 1980. But there was another policy. You see, my father had started working for a new medical practice a year before, and part of his contract was that they were going to get a life insurance policy for him for a million dollars. Well, only after his passing did we find out that there was an administrative error and they had never signed him up for a policy. Now, at that time, my mom was too exhausted to pursue what could have been a emotionally fraught legal battle. But that $200,000 from my parents' insurance policy actually went really far. My mom invested it in the stock market And that money ended up paying for not only my college education, but the college education of both of my brothers, as well as graduate school for all of us, even my medical school. In some ways, this was the classical estate planning, the classical transference of wealth when a family member dies. But looking back, there was so much more. My mom eventually remarried And what I learned about money and wealth went so much farther than the money they gave me. They taught me about frugality. They taught me about saving and investing and real estate and side hustling and owning your own businesses. In essence, they not only gave me money, which they did quite a bit of, but also the knowledge, habits, and family vision and culture that will not only sustain me, but also hopefully my children and grandchildren. Roger and Lori Gervais are the husband and wife team behind the Gervais Group, named by Forbes as Best In-State Wealth Advisors in Wisconsin. Lori has also been named to Forbes America's Top Women Advisor list. I just had the pleasure of reading their upcoming book, Pass It On, Transferring Wealth, Wisdom, and Financial Smarts to Future Generations. Roger and Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. I really enjoyed the book, and we're going to get to why later, but I really found it very informative for what is normally a little bit of a dry subject. No doubt. No doubt. 
Jen Smith is a regular panelist on Earn and Invest. She is the blogger behind Modern Frugality and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Frugal Friends. Jen, glad to have you back. Thank you so much for having me, as always. So, Lori, let's start with your book. And I want to start at the beginning and then go to the end. The book starts with you talking about the birth of your daughter, Anna, and then you end in the conclusion with a story about your children talking about how they're going to spend their savings. Beginning and end both really relate to your children. I'm wondering, did you guys ever think about wealth transference or estate planning before you had kids? Well, by nature of our career paths, yes, in the sense that we have the organized financial plan and estate plan and, and everything that a financial advisor is supposed to have. But it wasn't until really the birth of Anna where it's like everything just stopped. You just paused and said, okay, life's about a lot more than just the two of us. You know, and you started to think about every decision you made, whether it was financial or estate planning or more like where do we live and what schools do we go to and how are we going to teach her all the best ways, you know, to be and how to grow up. It just started to dawn on us that, okay, everything we say and do, they are going to look at us as their role model. So whether it's in the traditional sense of, you know, what you eat and, and, and how you act in the community, et cetera. But in, with our expertise being in finance, of course, we feel like it's critical that they also know how to manage money and they're going to watch us. They're going to learn a lot by watching. And that was why we talk so much about the kids in the book. Roger, as Lori mentioned, you guys are both in the finance world. So you had a leg up, but why do you think so many people avoid thinking about wealth transference? Why, as I had mentioned in the introduction, is this sometimes a dry topic? Well, I think the the traditional view is very morbid. When you think about wealth transfer, a lot of times the first thing that comes to mind is dotting the I's and crossing the T's related to your actual estate plan. And I would agree with the consensus that it is that part of it is very morbid. But as Lori and I have had the opportunity to experience people do this successfully, we've, we've come to the conclusion that it's about way more than putting things on a piece of paper. It's about the value system. It's about telling them the stories, the good and bad about how the family traditions have created wealth and or opportunities to build wealth. And I think if more people could look through that lens and and less focus on dotting the I's and crossing the T's of an actual estate plan, maybe there'd be more momentum as it relates to talking and thinking about wealth transfer. Jen, what Roger says reminds me a little bit of the history I know you had growing up. We think of wealth transference as estate planning, yes, to some extent, but actually what Roger was talking about are some of those stories that we build up around wealth throughout childhood. Think back about your childhood. Did you have stories or family stories about wealth that your parents taught you or told you? Absolutely. I think the one that stands out the most is that, and I don't even think it was told a lot, but I maybe just heard it once is my grandmother invested $2,000 in penny stocks and lost it all like instantly. And so 
we never invested in the stock market. That was like a family thing. My grandmother did not after that. My parents did not. And so I get to adulthood and that's my only like familiarity with the stock market in like into adulthood. And so, yeah, for me and my audience, it's hard enough just to get people to realize you need a will. You can get one for 40 bucks and you just need one. Like that's the starter. But yeah. And, and I know so many other people have stories like that. And it's easy to see how you could have transferred that same story to your own son unless you had known better. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, we live in an age where technology and information flows freely. It's a blessing and a curse. And so I was able to find alternative ways of thinking about the stock market. And you don't know what you don't know. And so you don't know what questions to ask if you don't know the questions. So, and you'll never get the answers. The other reason that Lori and I felt it was so important to get things on paper is as you look at the formal educational curriculum that we all go through, this is a huge gap in society. And all the way through college, even, there's really not any, there's not any proactive approach in educating you and preparing you for creating and or managing the wealth transfer in the future. Lori, Jen was talking about stories, and then Roger was just mentioning that there's no formal curriculum, especially in our educational system. In the beginning of the book, you guys talk a lot about creating a family vision and establishing an obligation to family stewardship. To me, that sounds like a a money culture for the family Discuss what that means. Now, when, when you say family vision to some that can sound so formal and foreign, and, and you can make it formal if you want, but it can also be casual. But I think the importance of it really is that you're having that communication with your kids and talking about the purpose of money. I mean, it's, it's simple questions like, what is money used for? How, what, you know, what do you think of this? If you have rentals and, and, you, and you have income coming in from that, what should we do with that money? If the kids are going to earn money doing uh, some chores or some work in the neighborhood, what should we do with that money? But talking with them about that so you can get in their heads to know wh- where, they're, where they're going, what they're thinking about while they're young but when we use the words family vision, I mean, at the same time of, as us asking the kids these questions and trying to see where they are in their financial education, you know, we're just constantly living, breathing, talking, modeling what we feel our vision for money is. Because so often in the last 20 years of our career, of my career anyways, I have seen so many families that are saddened that their kids aren't using money the way they want them to. And so when they are doing things like estate planning, they're worried about they're going to fritter the money away or they've made my child make bad decisions. And at this point, their child's 65. And so those those visions of how to use wealth, they're already built. And so that was part of our reflection and wanting to get this in the book. Yes, you can sign the will and cross the T dot the I, but all that modeling, all that education, it happens from age three to 63, you know, and wanting to just in how you act, how you display yourself, you know, how you choose to spend your money. 
you know, let it be the ways that you want your kids to be doing it as well. It doesn't always have to be a lecture. It's just, it's modeling. It's a lot of shadowing and modeling and storytelling. Jen, one of the informal ways that we help our children see our vision is with that storytelling. You have a story from your childhood, which is a little bit more on the negative, fearful side. How do we flip the switch and turn those to positive stories for our children? How do we make that informal way better than maybe some of the fear we grew up with? I think I'm a huge fan of telling kids what you're doing. So as you're doing it. And so I think just saying like, hey, we're spending this much on groceries because this is what we've budgeted for. We have a budget. And so it's not it's not a lecture. It's not something you sit kids down to do and, you know, make it boring, but you're just saying it as you're doing it. So you're modeling it and you're not just assuming they're picking it up, but you're saying it because we, we didn't have any conversations about money when I was growing up. And that in itself was a conversation. So I love um, how you guys talk about the modeling aspect of of teaching. Roger, I almost feel when I think about financial stewardship with our children that there are three basic models of teaching them, right? So there is didactic teaching where you sit them down and say, this is compound interest and tell them about that. There's modeling where you let them see how you do things and allow them to be part of that conversation. And the last is experiential. Talk about how we can let our children fail in a safe way and learn about money using experiences. I'm sure the types of experiences have more or less risk associated with them as the kid gets older. So when I think about the experiential, I think the lowest risk is when they're younger, let's say pre-18 years old. And there are many opportunities that that may just fall in day-to-day life. For our kids, Lori and I have focused on trying to create an environment where they come to us when they want money. And the question, we consider ourselves successful if they ask us, how can we earn it? And that, in our opinion, is the type of result we would expect to get through the experiences we give them. And the experiences are them doing work that aren't in the day-to-day household chores of the family, and and we provide some compensation, and then they can make the decision, do they want to spend it and not have any savings for the next thing they want? So those are the small day-to-day experiences. The negative experiences that, that I think we've, we've let our kids have is related to what I just described, and it's been more on the spending side of things. When one child, let's say, blows all their money on what's supposed to be the next best thing, and then they see the the next child uh, a week later go and buy a candy bar, and they have no money left, those are the type of day-to-day experiences that I think they've had to think through. As they get older, what we've experienced with clients specifically is it gets more difficult to watch your kid have the negative experiences. And a lot of time that's what creates the angst 
that usually makes its way into the estate plan where they really tighten up the restrictions or they try to put petitions between creditors and their estate is there's more consequence. And we have seen many families do it successfully, meaning they they let the kid make the bad decision on a business or make a bad decision on overpaying for a home and they have to deal with the consequences. But it does become tricky as they get older. Roger, it's an important point because that, you know, I've noticed this with my own children is you try to allow them to fail, but then as a parent, it's really hard not to step in and protect them from failing. I was thinking also going back to the younger years so that we can help them not make those mistakes as adults, the ones that are more dangerous, like filing bankruptcy or losing a home or things like that, in order to prepare them beforehand where the damage isn't too bad. Things like you know, maybe they're in charge of the money for the hockey tournament for the weekend. You know, there's no damage that's really going to happen, but they're allotted the hundred dollars that has to cover their food, their play, their video games, whatever it is you're going to be doing at that hockey tournament. It just gives them that sense of responsibility of how to learn how to manage that money. And you and I know as adults, there's really going to be no harm that comes out of that. And there's other examples like that, whether it's planning a trip with them and, and they, they're in on it. So they, they'll, they'll appreciate the trip more if they know, well, if we take this ride, it's going to cost this much money. And if we go to this area, it'll cost this much. Getting them involved with whether it's a grocery trip, target trip, like I said, hockey tournament weekend, just getting them to be thinking about the cost of things and being able to chew on that when they're 5, 10, 15, 18 years old. I really do think it'll make a difference in the long run. I know personally it did for me. I didn't have those exact experiences, but I had some experiences that certainly made me think about how money works and how to budget and manage it. I, I still go back to, we, we, lived, we lived in a rural area where it was long distance to, to call friends because our friends would be 30 minutes away, but still go to the same high school. And I, I had to pay what that bill is. So you had to start to make decisions on, is it worth talking to my friend for an hour and paying that bill? You know, you had to start to chew on that, that what you do, you're going to be accountable for, whether it's the phone bill or going in on the car insurance, just there's different things you can do and each family will be unique in what they choose to do. But I think by giving them those experiences all along the way, I know personally, I really do thank my parents for that. I don't think they even knew they were doing what they did. You know what I mean? I don't think that they realized how much of an impact they were having in doing that. So it went a long ways for me. And we've really expanded upon that and put a lot of that type of storytelling in the book as well to help other people. The other thing I think that is related to experiences that maybe doesn't get enough discussion is seeing somebody else's experience through their stories. One of the ways in which I can remember as, as a child is my, my grandfather, who his, his dad died when he was 13. He took over the family farm, helped create income and, and kept the farm going for his, his siblings and his mom. 
he used to tell me these stories when we were on this land or if we were going hunting. I I don't think he had any intention other than telling me the story, but it certainly helped build my respect for money and how important it was and also started to understand the risks associated with life in general and how a poor plan could really make your family pretty vulnerable. And we've talked a lot about things like that with our kids, even my grandfather's stories. And I think those can provide experience in a different fashion, ways in which they might not feel it tangibly, but the closer the the relationship is and the more clarity they have on the story, I think it can have a similar impact. Lori, Roger is talking about safe ways to give your children those experiences. We talked about modeling. I was interested to see that you go as far in the book as to talk about being careful on who you expose your children to, the outside influencers that become part of your children's lives. Talk to us a little bit about that. How important is it for you as a parent to surround them with the right kind of people? I think it's extremely important. I mean, I think all parents tend to think about, you know, making sure their kids have good friends and have good confidence and things like that. But of course, being from the financial mindset, we we think about the influence and impact friends can have. Friends, teachers, adults, aunts, uncles, could, you know, really anybody in their life. We, we know that they can be influential on them as well in a variety of ways. And, you know, specifically to the book, of course, we're talking about the financial ways, but making sure that they're, they're surrounded by successful people, people that want to make the world a better place, people that want to make the community a better place. They might own a business. They might be a stay-at-home mom. They, you know, they can have a successful career. I mean, we just want to make sure that they know what's out there and how, you know, what we value when we talk about our family vision, for instance, you know, you might become successful with your career or a business, but it's very important that you have an impact within your family and within your community and, and help support those that have supported you along the way as well. So we want to have them be surrounded by those types of people that really are moving forward and are positive. And so that's, that's what I would say about that. Jen, do you remember while growing up, was there an influencer in your life that taught you about money? Maybe not your parents, but either another family member or friend who modeled that kind of behavior for you? Nothing really sticks out. I just remember going to other friends' houses that maybe had like higher income, their parents had higher incomes and they had more things. So I can remember riding in nicer cars or seeing nicer kitchens and stuff. And I think my mom was partly embarrassed about where they were in life because I was never allowed to have friends over, but I was always allowed to go to other people's houses and stay the night at other people's places. So like, I remember feeling that and knowing that there was a difference in lifestyles. Roger, I want to transition the conversation. Up to this point, we've been really talking about behavior and family culture, but a good part of the book is also about tactical estate planning. We mentioned this idea that people don't like to think about their own mortality, but estate planning in general is something that we tend to put off. Why 
isn't it more front and center in our financial plan? It's a, it's a great question. I believe it's just the, the morbid element of it. People don't like to think about it. I mean, at a very basic fundamental level, I would consider naming beneficiaries on your accounts as, as the most basic part of estate planning. And we see regularly where either it's not been done, it's not been updated, ignorance is bliss, status quo, whatever you want to call it. That's a very dominant theme. May also be part of the lack of education and, and not thinking about the consequences of what happens if something does happen to me. That's a morbid thought. And, and also just they might not even know what to do. I mean, a will is, is very simple to execute. And Jen mentioned earlier, it could be done for a little to no cost at this point, but it requires effort. It requires some level of understanding of what you're putting in place. So I guess it's a, a combination of things. And I would say, you know, I would add to that, yes, I think people look at it as a morbid thing. You know, I'm, I'm putting a line in the sand. This is the end of my life. This is what's going to happen. And, and they don't want to talk about that. They have that fear. But I think also they're not thinking about all the joy that can come out of estate planning. And I know that's a strange comment, but going back to the conversations about building all these experiences as your kids grow up, like I said, from three to 63 years old, all these different experiences and modeling and shadowing and all these things. But estate planning can be joyful too in the fact that how, how am I going to leave a legacy? What do I want my kids to do with this money? What do I, you know, what do I want them to do in the community? If they were to receive this money today, what do I want them to know about how to manage money, how to facilitate things, how to be successful? Because the thing is, you, you and I, we don't, we don't know when that day is. We might be, you know, crossing that line at 40 or 50 or 80 years old. And so for us, when we wrote the book, we said, what if we weren't here? What would we want our kids to know if they're between three and 10 years old? What types of things do we want them to know if we're just not here to educate them on that? What if they're 10 to 18 years old? What would we like them to know? What if they're 18 to 25 years old? What do we want them to know? What do we want them to tell our grandkids and their grandkids? You know, we go through the entire life, you know, life cycle because I don't think you ever stop being a parent you know, you never do. And so I just think that there can be some joyful pieces to estate planning and people don't usually think of it that way. Jen, I love this idea of estate planning being joyful. I mm -hmm. will tell you for me, one of the reasons it isn't, and I'm curious to see your opinion is I feel like estate planning sounds a lot tougher than it was 20 years ago. Like with all the different new accounts and different types of beneficiaries and all the different types of insurances, and we're not even talking about social media, which might not be money itself, but still is part of your estate. Is it more complicated than it used to be? It certainly seems to be to me. So maybe it's my ignorance, but I almost feel like the opposite. Like with technology, it's easier to set up beneficiaries. Technology's allowed us to make it easier to set up wills. I mean, 
point blank, I actually got like a free will online and then just got somebody to notarize, like a notary to notarize it. So it cost me nothing to get a will, but you can get, you know, more official ones for like very affordably. So I just feel like it's made it simpler to get started. There's this big barrier to entry because of people see estate planning more as death planning versus financial planning. And so I feel like the barrier to entry is maybe lower. And so down the road, yes, gets more complex, but I feel like hopping over that initial barrier is kind of like an, you know, a success, a victory. And that I feel like is a little easier now. Roger, one of the hurdles is just the fact that there is so much information to talk about. Discuss a little bit the wealth organizer that you guys use in your practice. So the the wealth organizer is really focused on trying to tackle exactly what you, what you brought to the forefront is it things get complicated. I think there's different phases in life. Let's call it your financial life. As you're going through the accumulation phase, it's nearly impossible to not make things more complicated. Maybe you have rental homes, maybe you have multiple 401k accounts, or now you have a trust, or maybe you've created irrevocable type titling for for whatever particular reason. Those, Those things tend to get complicated really quickly if they're not organized in a legible fashion. And in a nutshell, that's what we're trying to accomplish with the wealth organizer. Is it something that will grow with the complexities? And at the end of the day, the the real value in it is it should help simplify and even to the point of helping lower cost in creating an estate plan. This should be a tool that you can take to the attorney and say, here's the bulk of the information you're going to need. Lori and I allude to this concept of the virtual family office. And this this concept is really geared towards as you move to the accumulation and or maybe even kind of the legacy phase of life is surrounding yourself with the experts that have experience with situations like yourself that if you give them all of this information that's in the binder, they can help you make the right decisions if you've laid out some goals. And we think that's probably an area that needs to be talked about more and advisors bringing these ideas to the table and and ways to help simplify it to make sure people do move on the estate planning. And I would add to that with the wealth organizer that we use, what it can do is also just look under the hood to say, okay, what is missing? You know, cross those T's, dot those I's as Jen alluded to. Okay. In the beginning, it might be simple, but it's like a building block approach. It's like building a house. I mean, you can get this all started. And then as your life becomes more complex and you become wealthier, you just keep adding to this and make sure everything is addressed and there's no issues that you want to make sure when you look through here that you know, you're not missing opportunities, but there's also not landmines. You're doing really both at the same time. And to Roger's point, bringing in, making sure that other professionals are collaborating with the financial advisor. So the CPA, the estate planning attorney, financial advisor, insurance, mortgage, you know, all your different folks, they should all be working together and be able to talk you through a binder like this, an organizer like this, to make sure, okay, I have peace of mind. I'm in a good spot. And when you add to it, it doesn't feel so complex. 
the problem can be when you don't think about any of this until you're 50, <laughs> you know, and so it's like, not too late, not too late. We could definitely help you fix that. But ideally, you know, you get started just as soon as possible. In the first half of the show, Lori, Roger, and Jen talk about family culture and real estate planning. After the break, we discuss when it's time to bring in a financial advisor. But first... All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Are you enjoying listening to Earn and Invest on Mondays and Thursdays? Well, if you want to get the same conversations 24-7, seven days a week, go on over to our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. There we discuss topics very similar to the podcast. It covers everything from personal finance to current events to, yes, occasionally even politics. Come become part of the community. We'd love to see you there. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Jen, Lori, and Roger bring up an important point as they talk about advisors. I feel like with a certain segment of the personal finance world, there is a lot of embracing the DIY method. How important are advisors? I mean, you yourself were talking about kind of finding your own will online. How much of this do you think we can do on our own and how much do we need help for? Well, it depends on your interest in it. So if you're somebody that likes to search in personal finance, like Google everything and like to be able to do it on your own, I think there's a lot you can do on your own. The more I read, the more I feel like I'm able to do on my own own, but, but I'm a personal finance writer. And so that stuff like, you know, gets, gets me going. And then there are some people that do not want to touch it and it does not interest them. And so even the things they can do, maybe it behooves them to have somebody else do it 
So it depends on the interest level. Roger, how do you know when a client needs some outside help and just isn't seeing it? Well, the obvious is when you look at the, the underlying assets and titling and things like that, from a very technical standpoint, once you start seeing vulnerabilities or gaps in things that should be done, that's a quick way to identify. But often it's a much softer answer. I mean, it depends on their goals. What phase of life are they in? Are all of their assets in their 401k or, you know, what are they thinking about? What's next? Do they have a family business? A lot of times it's, it's, it's very situational, I think stress testing their their goals against what they've done and what their knowledge base is at this point is is probably the approach we would take in identifying it. But I don't know that there's a single answer to how do you identify it. It tends to be different for everyone. Roger, define for us what stress testing is. How does one go about doing that? Well, in the book, we we make the analogy to if you've ever seen the crash test dummies on TV where they hurl this car at a wall and they thrash the dummy around to see if the car's safety meets expectations. That's what we're trying to do with people's finances and their estate plan is what's your goal and then throw it against the wall as hard as you can and thrash it around and see if it breaks. So Lori, I feel like we've covered this idea of building a family culture. We've talked about educating your children through didactic means, modeling, and your experiential learning. We've covered some of the basics of the estate plan. Towards the end of the book, you talk a lot about biases and some of the ways to protect your kids after they receive your wealth from squandering it. What are some of the biases we face or our children will face that could squelch all that good planning we've done? So for instance, we talk in the book about how we have, there's a story in there about a client that they, they felt the attachment, you know, to the specific stock that made her dad wealthy, you know, so things like that can occur where you become attached, you know, because it's almost like, well, that is what made my dad successful. I don't want to sell a piece of my dad, you know, now that he's gone, you know, we talk a lot about that, that people feel they're doing something wrong if they make a change to whatever their parents did in their portfolio or with their home or, or what have you. So things like that can occur where you're just, you're attached there. You know, there are other biases as well to talk about that Roger has greater depth and insight into. So I'll turn to him for some perspective also. I think the most common one we see is the status quo, what we would call the status quo bias. And it's pretty well acknowledged even in financial curriculums, behavioral finance. And that's simply you don't want to make a change because that's what worked in the past or that's what you knew or are comfortable with. I'm sure there's a a variety of reasons uh, for that bias, but that is definitely the most, most popular or number one thing that we see people have an issue with. So Jen, I'd like to end the discussion with what I really think is a big picture question. We've been talking about transference of wealth as if it's a given. Is there an argument that maybe we shouldn't transfer wealth to our children, that maybe each generation has to figure it out on their own? 
What a great question. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think people should be willing to spend the wealth that they've created. They should enjoy it. And if there is a surplus, then be thinking of how to best transfer that. I think it's whatever comes down to the parent and the child's, you know, wealth and responsibility levels. I think it would be interesting to talk about like, what about those parents, like as for like my parents, no, for my mom, no idea about an estate plan. And so that's always been my struggle is that I am thinking about this stuff, but like she's not. So like how, how does that work with us for estate planning? But yeah, I think it just comes down to comfort level. And Jen, it certainly will have an effect on how you teach and plan for your own child. Mm -hmm. Since you've gone through what feels probably like a very disordered process dealing with your mom and her finances. Yeah. Lori, was that ever a part of your discussion, this idea that maybe wealth transference isn't necessary, or at least the money aspect of it is not as important as we make it to be? I think... To Jen's point, I mean, every family is going to have their own belief as to how much they want to pass on, if there, if there is excess to pass on, et cetera. In our minds, our family values, we look at it as, you know, a few generations ago, our family wasn't so well off, you know, and, and the next generation did better and the next generation did better and better and better. And so our personal opinion is it's not about just you know, this isn't a situation where you're uh, transferring billions of dollars to a child who's just going to sit on a beach somewhere. That's not what we're trying to talk about here. We're trying to talk about transferring values, transferring wealth, but making sure that the child is able to have purpose in life and then be impactful on family and community and just be that much better, you know, remove restrictions from them. Like, so for instance, Maybe a couple of generations ago, it was hard to go to college because somebody couldn't afford it. But then now, you know, as the next child, the next generation becomes more successful and they have the means to do that, they go to college. And then the next person has the ability, if they don't have financial restraints, maybe they have that ability to be an entrepreneur. Maybe they have that ability to go to the college they wanted to. So in, in our eyes, it's not just to pass wealth, just to perpetuate, you know, wealth. It's for many other reasons, financial security, the ability to give confidence, to be a community uh, partner, to be out there and be a successful business owner or career, have a successful career, but just helping the next generation to be even better. And that's really the way we look at it. I think Lori and I would both agree that it it is a fluid discussion, similar to anybody's estate plan. Things are going to change throughout the course of your life. And I very much feel that way with passing on wealth and dollars specifically as my kids grow older and they find their own ways. I could envision my my answer might change and maybe the discussion about being equal or equitable and which kid gets how much, those things could change as well as they make their way through life. So I, I do think you have to have an open mind and be fluid about how how that might transpire in the future. Lori, I love this discussion of transferring dollars 
versus transferring knowledge. And I feel like when we're talking about transferring wealth, and certainly from your book, what you're really talking about is transferring both together. And that if you just took the dollars part out, it's what's really probably important is the knowledge and culture. It reminds me of that saying, which I first heard while reading your book, which was shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. I think that relates to people who try to transfer dollars and not knowledge. But just for the audience, can you explain what that means? Yes, what we're getting at there, and that's an, that's an old proverb. And what happens is you, you have those, those folks that had to work their way up to build the wealth. And the second generation was able to live easily and peacefully and, and, and have the ball gowns, if you will, and be out there in society. But they didn't have the knowledge of how to manage the wealth. And so they blew the wealth. So the next generation is back to those shirt sleeves again, working you know, to the bone to start all over again. And that's what that proverb is talking about is you know, having to go right back to square one again. Rather, what we're trying to say is why not build upon, build upon, build upon each generation. And to do that, again, it's not about just transferring dollars because in that proverb, as you see, you can transfer dollars. But if the knowledge is not there, if the value system is not there, those dollars are not going to make it very far. So if you want your kids to be successful and grandkids, et cetera, you really want to transfer the knowledge, it's the knowledge that's the power. And then they'll, they'll squeak or you know, whatever, whatever the dollars they receive, they, they will be successful with that. Jen, since the recession of 2008, certainly in our community, there is a lot of talk of people who want to retire early. Do you think that's changing the wealth transference conversation? I mean, those interested in early retirement, do you think the planning is going to be different? Probably. I still think it's like a small subsect of <laughs> like the the culture in general. But I think it's definitely something to think about. And I think in those cases, passing knowledge is definitely more important as the goal is kind of to spend most of it. But you could also have that, you know, that glorious only spending what your nest egg is making. And so in that case, you will pass on dollars. So you won't really know until later on. Roger and Lori, I'm curious to see if any of your clients have come to you with wanting an early retirement and if that changes the way you talk to them about wealth transference. Yeah, well, I mean, we hear that all the time. People want to retire early, and I think that means something different to everyone. Re- retiring early, I think, has gained a lot of momentum. And, and I mean, I read about it a lot now, and quite honestly, I'm still a little bit cloudy on what early means. <laughs> um, but the, the answer to your question is yes, people do come to us regularly with a retire early. But in our, our experience and the clients that we deal with, that's not necessarily prohibitive to pass it on in dollars or knowledge terms. And, and quite honestly, at least in our experience and the folks we're working with, a lot of times retire early might be retire or walk away from their traditional role, but they may have a real estate venture or other small businesses or other interests that generate income. So I guess 
retire early and sit in the rocking chair. We don't see that a whole lot. In regard to the question of, you know, basically, can I retire early, but, but also pass it on, you know, can I have both, you know, can I live a glorious life and, and retire early and also pass it on? And the answer is yes. I mean, this goes back to what we talked about earlier about how, when we meet with clients, we're asking them, oh, what is your goals five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What are your concerns? What do you want for your kids, et cetera? And as Jen mentioned, everyone's going to be different in what they would like to do regarding passing it on. But this brings everything together that we've been talking about between the organizer talking about your goals and objectives and where you want to be and what you want for your kids. Then you can stress test it all, smush it all in there to what Roger was talking about and say, so can I do it? You know, I want to guarantee I give my kids X, but I want to retire at this age. And this is the spending I want to be able to have in retirement. Lori, can I do that? I mean, you have to have these discussions and you can you can talk artfully, you know, in regard to goals, but also do some serious number crunching. I mean, that's the whole purpose of having a plan. I mean, that's what a plan is. It's not necessarily a big, thick 50-page document. It's it's the conversations and the math calculations to say, can I have what I want with my life? And everyone is going to be different on what that want is, what those desires are. But you can do that number crunching and work through all of it and say, hey, this is going to work. I can I can retire early, have a fun, successful retirement, and still leave a legacy for my kids. You can. It's just a matter of planning for it. And that's the part that I think people have a hard time doing. And as I thought about the question a little bit more, I guess in my mind, if you're going to have a successful retirement, whether that be early or later, or however you want to term it, success means you're going to have money when you, when you pass away. And we don't know when we're going to pass away. So it makes it virtually impossible to spend down the pot and call it a successful retirement. You need potentially a large pot of money to generate inflation adjusted returns that can provide a nice quality of life as you retire. That being said, if you buy into that, then now it becomes a question of, do you want to be intentional about passing it on or you just want to let it happen? And I think that's what Lori was trying to describe that you're going to likely, if you're going to have a successful retirement, you're likely going to pass on dollars and whether you want to be intentional about it or not, that's kind of the decision that has to be made at some point. So we're talking about wealth transference with Lori and Roger Gervais and Jen Smith. Lori and Roger's upcoming book, Pass It On, Transferring Wealth, Wisdom, and Financial Smarts to Future Generations. I'm really excited to have this conversation. It reminds me that this discussion is so much more rich than just talking about estate planning. This is really talking about educating your children and providing a set of stories and culture for them that will last generations. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you guys what's up next in your life and where people can find you if they want to learn more. Roger and Lori, what's going on with you guys and where can people find you? Sure. Well, the very next thing coming up is our book launch, which is October 20th. So we're very excited about that. Very excited to share our story and be able to help others. 
And you can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us on our website, gervaiswealthmanagement.com. We try to put educational articles out there to help people along the way. So it's a great place to reach out to us. And Jen, what's new with you and where can people find you? As always, I am at Modern Frugality on social media, YouTube, and modernfrugality.com. And every Friday, wherever you're listening to this Frugal Friends podcast. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Roger and Lori Gervais and Jen Smith. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's a wrap. I love this conversation with Lori, Roger, and Jen. Let's talk a moment about passing it on. I think there are two types of passing on information we give to children. One is the knowledge, abilities, and skill having to do with money. And the other is the actual assets that we leave them. So let's first talk about the skills. When it comes to our kids, I really think there are three main ways in which we teach them about wealth. The first and what I feel is the least effective is didactic teaching. So we can sit them down and tell them about things like compounding. We can teach them about stocks and bonds and how you look at the stock market. That's all great, but if I look back to my own childhood, I don't think that's actually what's stuck. It's not what I remember. The second way we as adults can teach children about wealth and finances is by modeling. And here is what I think is one of the most effective ways that children pick up information in a family. They watch what their parents do. They see what the adults in the room are doing. How are they spending? Are they being frugal? Are they investing in the stock market? Are they investing in real estate? Are they bringing those kids along to go look at properties with them? Growing up, it was the modeling that really made a difference in my life. It was watching my mom do the budget. It was watching my stepdad go to our real estate properties and fix things. It was listening at the dinner table as they discussed their businesses. All of these great habits that they modeled for me really became part and parcel of what I learned as a child. It was a huge, huge part of my education. I can't think of how I would know about finances without that. The last and probably also very important way in which we learn about wealth and finances is by experience or experiential learning. When we are children, when we are young, we often have the chance to try and fail in a safe manner. And especially I think about this when I think about my own kids. How can I let them use their own experience to teach them about money? Well, my wife and I have figured out that we don't like giving them a weekly or monthly allowance. Instead, we give them a yearly allowance. We give them $550, $600 for the full year. And we do that on January 1st. Then they have that money. And they need to decide how to use that money throughout that year. If they use it too quickly, buy too much candy and things, they'll find in March or April that there's nothing left. And we don't give them any more. On the other hand, if they are too frugal and save too much, they might miss out on something good or some enjoyment. So we tend to pay for things like daily food and school supplies, but we do actually ask them to use their money to buy things like clothes and then candy or other things that are more fun. 
And this has allowed them this chance to not only plan and budget, but also to fail. And that's really one of the hardest things to do as a parent is to watch them fail and not step in and try to improve or keep them from making mistakes. I find this over and over again. My wife and I have to stop ourselves from stepping in and telling them the right thing to do. So when it comes to learning about money and wealth and our children, really, I think there are three ways to do it. One is didactic teaching, which is least successful. Another by modeling, which is very successful. And last is by having the chance for kids to learn experientially and fail. If you incorporate these things into your children's upbringing, they're going to understand and know about money much better than your average person because most people are not nearly as thoughtful about teaching their kids about money. Now, teaching them about wealth is one thing. The bigger question which I often struggle with is how much wealth should you leave your children? In fact, We all are working towards being financially secure ourselves. We are setting up our reserves and our investments. We're trying to create, in a sense, a perpetual money machine that will support us until retirement and eventually till death. But most likely, if we're successful, if we work really hard, if we have a job we enjoy, we may have extra money left. So the question is, should we be giving that money to charity or should we be leaving it for our children? It sounds obvious, right? We work hard, we make money, that money should go to our kids. On the other hand, many of us also believe that for children, they have to learn how to make it in this world themselves. In fact, nothing is ever given to us or if it is... Nothing comes for free. At some level, you have to learn how to figure out your finances, how to make your way in the work world yourself. If we leave our kids a huge pile of money, are we stunting their growth? Are we stopping them from learning how to be self-sufficient? It's a question I often struggle with. I've come down to this idea that we should pay for our kids' safety, we should pay for their basic needs, and at least for their schooling and education. I think that's one thing that as parents, it's very reasonable if you have extra money to pay for. On the other hand, once they finish college or graduate school or whatever they're doing, then it's time for them to go out on their own. I don't expect them to be living off my money once they finish schooling. They have to figure out what it's like to have a job, to budget, and once they get married, to figure out how to support a spouse or have a spouse support them, how to support children. This is all part and parcel of growing up. But what will I do in the end if there is money left over? Will I leave it to my children? Will I leave it to charity? It's a big question, and I don't know if there are any easy answers except to say that maybe you do a little bit of both, right? Maybe you leave money to charity. Maybe you leave some to your children or hopefully to your grandchildren. Maybe you make sure that your grandchildren's higher education is paid for, The idea is to leave a level of safety for your family and for your children and your children's children, and yet leave them space to learn and to grow and to figure it out for themselves. Because after all, isn't that what we're all doing? As we come together as a community on Earn and Invest, we talk about the best ways to manage our money. Our parents maybe could have showed us, they could have told us, but on some level, we also have to learn on our own. 
And it's that learning that we do here when we get together and talk about it. It's that learning which we want to bring you on Earn and Invest. Jen, this was our first podcast ever, so I hope we weren't terrible. You guys were great. You were oh, great. <laughs> thank you for helping us through that. Okay. No, and I mean, you... just wanted to say thank you for bringing a, a different perspective yeah. on our book. It was really interesting to see it through your lens. So that was awesome. Ho- hopefully it wasn't totally opposite what you thought it would be. Oh. No, no, no. Actually, we, it was what we had hoped, but we didn't really know if people would value the soft, I'll say the softer side of yeah. transferring. Money. I love that you gave it life. I just, I just love it. This is awesome. Yeah. That's kind of the best thing about a podcast tour is that every host will have a different interpretation for their unique audience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, and cool. we're definitely all about mindset um, and not as much about tactical. So, yeah. so your manuscript fit a lot of, of what I, what I preach here, but it's also what I believe because mm-hmm. I think it's very true. And, and you guys are a perfect example of this. I could go to you and you can give me the binder and help me with the tactical. Right. But how I teach my children at home, mm-hmm. how I prepare them for that transfer of wealth and actually prepare mm-hmm. them to actually know what to do with it mm-hmm. is, is what's much more complicated. And there's a lot mm-hmm. more gray area to that. And, mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. And we'll serve them while I'm alive as well as after. And I that's think that's true. also a key part of it is you really, it's, it's really a knowledge transfer that's continuous mm-hmm. as opposed to just this kind of thump right after. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 